Is data now a weapon? Is it the way forward? Is data a window into our future? Is it the new oil? Is data a geopolitical game changer? Is it a friend or foe to American democracy? How do we know? How do we know anything? Welcome to Data Reveal. Hey, Mark Fidelli here. Before we get into this week's episode of Data Reveal with my friend Jerry Simpson, I wanted to put my finger on the pulse of what I think this week's real theme is. Each time we do an episode, it, it intentionally ranges in a lot of directions, and we like that, but this one ranges a bit more than usual. But there's two themes, capitalism and activism, you know, making money and making a difference that really stand out and how data is used can cut a couple different ways. So listen carefully. Courtney gets to this at the end. You can use data to justify your preconceived ideas or you can use data to challenge your biases and help you make a difference based on what the data teaches you and shows you. Data is not perfect, but it should be a guide to ground truth And when you follow the right steps, rather than making data conform to what you want to happen, which may or may not be, you know, consistent with ground truth and could certainly be deceitful or just uninformed and misinformed, it's not good for capitalism to be filled with false information or even misleading marketing information. So we get into that. I look forward to anyone's feedback in a review or in social media. You can see in our show notes how to get to us and let's have a conversation. With that, let's jump in. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Data Reveal podcast. I'm Mark Fidelli, your host with co-hosts Courtney Hastings and Andrew Churchill. Welcome. Hello. We have our special guest, Jerry Simpson. Jerry, welcome, CEO of KiteWire. Glad you could make it. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be with you guys here today. Well, I think for all of us, this is uh, the fast disclaimer, but maybe the most important part. This is just us talking. So we are uh, sponsored by Click, but we are not formally representing Click's opinions or ideas. These are our opinions and ideas. So we look forward to uh, to that. And Jerry, same extends to you. Free free reign to talk about anything we want to. I've known you for enough years that. Uh, you have no problem saying how you feel. And most of the time, it really resonates with people and makes them feel good. So however we can be honest and make people feel good, I'd love to bottle that. Let's do it. Well, Jerry, I I just want to jump in on your recent LinkedIn post, I'm not okay. That was pretty heartfelt for me. Uh, For those who haven't read it, I recommend before I have any thoughts about it and why I really was moved. Jerry, do do you want to tell us what prompted that? And, um, you know, we've been thinking about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I don't know a better way to sort of cap that off than as much as you can even bring us into your experience on that particular day, and then how that got us to this moment and your your post. We'd love to start right there. Yeah. If I had to really, you know, what prompted the post in the first place was pure frustration. You know, every year we have this 24-hour magical window where we all rally together and say thank you to these people who did this thing, uh, many of which for, and this was 20 years, and it's, it's an incredibly unique war time in that we were at war so long that most people just went about their day-to-day lives and kind of lost a little bit of touch as to what the real traumas were and what, what was happening across the world. And I work 
with veterans as much as I can to try to get to, to do the little things that I think we're responsible to do when we send anybody to war that long and they're back in our care. And I feel angry, to be honest with you, that there is so much more to be done that's not being done. And when I do just the basic math on, as you saw in my post, we lost um, you know over 2,000 people in September 11th and we lose 6,000 plus just veterans to their own hand every year for 20 years to suicide that had PTSD. And it feels negligent and it feels irresponsible. And as a person who's been in the business of defense and government, it feels like part of my responsibility to try to do whatever can be done about it. And then you combine that with the fact that, you know, my experiences on September 11th were traumatic and the 20th anniversary is rather triggering for me. You know, I tr mostly try to avoid the media around that time. I posted something like, I re highly respect those that choose to never forget, but it is a day I, I try to never remember. And just as a like, I get why we should never forget, this is where I'm coming from on that day. And then my own journey in the last, uh, since September 11th up until, between September 11th and Veterans Day, to seek therapy for the first time and being inspired by these really strong leaders. And I'll say, I'll add, you know, male leaders, not to highlight males, but I think it's important for males to see other males raising their hand and saying they need help and various other cultures and subcultures that just aren't as good at this. We're just not great at it, especially on this front. And loved seeing some of my colleagues raise their hand or just, just be such great examples and great leaders to say, oh, where were you? Oh, sorry, I was 10 minutes late. I was at my therapist. And I was shocked that they would say that in a, in a world where we don't have that much culture. And, and that prompted me to actually go work on some of the PTSD I had around this issue and other issues, to be, to be honest. And I thought, I didn't do this before because there was at least the impression that I would lose my clearance. And for me, financially, that wouldn't be much of a big deal, but it was the meaningful work that I was really committed to doing around that. I don't know if it was true that I would or would not have, but it was at least definitely the message I received several times was the fastest way to lose my clearance was to say I was getting therapy for a mental health issue and thinking you know, as an entrepreneur, I have a coach for just about everything. I go to the gym, I have a coach, I got a business coach. Why can I not have a mental coach? And thinking that the outcome of my therapy, really, if I thought about all the things that I, from a national security perspective, it felt like we were way more secure with the place that I was at mentally. Not that we were compromised before, vulnerable before, but you know, why would me getting stronger mentally be a detriment to that? And um, it just really breaks my heart to work with these men and women who did something amazing for us, suffered incredibly and continued to suffer. And what I just thought, what are some of the low hanging fruit? Well, the lowest hanging fruit to me would be to model what people had modeled for me, which is to say, hey, you know what? I got therapy too, and I feel a lot better from it. And I'm really glad that I did and try to inspire. It's not as important to have someone like me outside of the military, outside of the DOD, even though it's an industry I'm, I work a lot with, as it is to have some leaders, some generals, some admirals step up and say that, because in my opinion, it's got to come from the top, that they have the cover uh, to do it. No one's going to no come for them. 
And, um, and I honestly, I found people sent me, you know, listen, my wing commander, my so-and-so, all these people that these pockets where leaders are doing it, that made me really, really excited. Some leaders that I greatly respect inside the DOD reposted and said things like, I used to think that, um, you know, this kind of stuff was a signal of weakness. And I've learned that we're stronger together. We're stronger when we work on these things. And yeah, so that's just sort of the background mm. into what was going on in my head and, and what, um, and then, the, you know, just the, the other side is I'm bothered by the fact that there's medicine that has shown to be so highly effective that continues to be pushed out because uh, I'll just, you know, this is my opinion. I blame it on pharma. Nobody likes fast cures in that industry. I know I have a lot of pharma customers. They don't like hearing it, but they don't like to hear things like, you know, three sessions and you're permanently cured. Uh, that is not their favorite terms. It's not great business. There's no lifetime customer value there. And seeing the FDA move at record speeds in the last 24 months on a handful of things, which I'm grateful and appreciative for, and I do understand that resources have been taken to do that, it just shows you uh, what can be done when it's important. And I think this is important. And it feels like if we can't, especially in such a divided time, I have not seen a lot of division over we got to take care of our vets, but I just don't see the action. And so it's, so everyone sort of agrees we need to do it, but no one's really, we're just not taking enough action. And I just think it, the only way I really see it happening is people that people like us, people like the listeners of this podcast doing whatever is in their realm of control and influence to make it matter. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, real quick, Mark, I mean, I couldn't agree more. The work the VA does is so important, but the VA alone, the money the VA grants is never going to be enough. It's a, it's a, it's a culture problem. The society is going to have to care for those who, you know, are, are mentally wounded, you know, and especially those that are mentally wounded because of their service. My wife's a social worker, works in addiction therapy, and it is absolutely incredible how incapable society is of of really being vulnerable itself in order for these groups themselves to feel like it, they're comfortable talking about their problems. And I, uh, every, everything you say there is just incredibly spot on. I, you're coming from somebody who, uh, like my wife, I couldn't pack my feelings d any deeper down in my, and <laughs> below my, uh, you know, my mouth, they're not, they're not coming out. So I, but it's such an incredible, challenge that they've got ahead of them. And it's really one that I think there a lot of folks are scared to tackle because again, if you can't resource mental healing across a, a society, it's easier to you know, take a different approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about the experience that I had on September 11th and the fact that that was still weight on my shoulders 20 years later, and I try to compare that with some of the stories, you know, that have been brought home from 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these stories blow my mind. I mean, they, it's not to, not to belittle anyone's trauma over another, but part of, you know, I really did feel like my, my uh, trauma from September 11th just pales in comparison to some of the things that, that they've endured. And so it just really makes me realize if I'm still carrying that on my back 20 years later, we just gotta take care of these young men and women. And, and now, now many of them not so young. Well, and we're talking about the ones that have survived that are still right. living, but I'm sure you saw 
this year that the suicide rate of veterans hit an all-time high, which is just terribly sad. Somebody, somebody on Veterans Day posted like a flag for every veteran that every veteran with PTSD, diagnosed with PTSD, who died at their own hand, they posted a flag for every single one between January 1st and Veterans Day. And it was jaw dropping mm. for me. I mean, it was uh, high 4,000s. And I appreciated that they took the time to put 4,000 plus flags in a post. I mean, those things, sometimes that's just the thing that really lands on it for people. You know, data visualizations, I know we all live in the data world. Uh, and sometimes that's that kind of thing that just really makes it sit home for you mm. and feels, feels like it merits attention for action. Yeah. And I, I know I none of this to be political in the Bush administration and then all of the administrations that followed Bush got the data on what are we, this is terrible. And what are we going to do about it? And at the time, the, the framing was we're losing more people to our own hand than the enemy's hand, which is shocking statistic in and of itself. Funded a lot of studies. Those studies continue to be funded through all the administrations past, you know, Obama, Trump and Biden. And the angering thing for me is that that seems to have pretty bipartisan support when you look at the administrations it crosses and the results are known, amazing, uh, invoked. Like the, the solutions are not invoked. Yeah. So, Jerry, let's let's educate the audience a little bit about this. You and I, last time we got together, we were at an event where we learned a little bit about one course of treatment that Johns Hopkins is doing since it's what, like psilocybin research or that kind of research that's edgy to some, but that's in a field that's pretty broad now of treatments that seem to have a permanent effect. I was educated on that. Can you educate folks just on what you've seen in that area, what you're doing and what what efficacy has so far looked like for treating a number of mental health cases? PTSD is one of the diagnoses that that this seems to work on. There are others, but I think not to make people yeah, angry, I'm, but kind of to make people angry, this is doable, right? Yeah, it's doable. And it's um, it's actually absurd that it wouldn't be done if you looked at any other metric of uh, how you would go about solving a problem like this. But you know, I'm well read up and well studied on the full, you know, there's a lot of, um, I'll just say, research being done on that category of medicine. And for all kinds of broad use, and I think it's all very interesting, but the very undeniable, just irrefutable, nobody's even tried to, Night Pharma doesn't even try. Right now, they're, they've just swallowed it and said, this is going to happen. Can we buy time to be the people that make the money on it? So that's really what we're hearing out of them say, it's going to happen. We just want to be the people that, that are leading it instead, fighting it is really specifically around the medicine MDMA, very specifically for PTSD. All of the studies that have been done have been done with veterans. So what you have there is, you know, very significant PTSD. So you're not looking at it in a, into any sort of strange category. There, it was granted, the FDA granted it breakthrough status, breakthrough therapeutic status in 2018. You know, it's about to be 2022. They just finished the phase three trials uh, this last week, and the conclusion of the phase three trials is that with just three sessions of MDMA-assisted therapy, which means you have a therapist who's trained at this while you're medicated, 
for what is about a two-hour session. After three of those sessions, they no longer meet the qualifications for having PTSD at 68%. 88% said that they had a clinically, from the clinical meeting described as a meaningful upgrade or reduction reduction in their systems, upgrade in their quality of life. Mm. So that's profound. Three sessions of uh, clinically prescribed, administered medication. So you think, okay, well, what's the holdup? Is the medication not safe? There's more than a decade's worth of information that says three cups of coffee is worse for you than one of these sessions is. It's certainly a lot better than being on an antidepressant for the rest of your life that is not actually getting making anybody better. So what's the holdup? There's no business case in this. There's no business case. There's no lifetime customer value out of that. And I'll tell you, I'll take it, you know, I don't want to make every industry upset, but I can tell you that the alcohol beverage industry is taking note and the tobacco lobby is taking note. And to be honest, the mental health industry is taking note because they don't need therapists anymore. Mm. And that's, that's problematic. And so you say, if somebody was paying a couple hundred dollars an hour or their insurance was once a week for a lifetime, and suddenly they don't need that anymore, then that's, that's a little bit problematic. And I think the mental health industry is so excited by some of these things that they're saying, how do we treat more people who just don't ever come because they don't, they don't want to be on a couch an hour a week for the rest of their life and looking at it and saying, let's heal people quickly and get them into a broader market. But when you look at also the statistics on how much this reduces uh, opioid addiction, alcohol addiction, cigarette addiction, yeah, you know that that alarms a lot of industries. And so, but if you just look at that one very microscope, this medicine prescribed in a clinical setting for people that have PTSD, and if you just said, let's just talk about our veterans mm-hmm. instead of all, there's a lot we could talk about there. But if you just say like that, feels like a no-brainer thing that we would do. We, um, I put my article, schedule one, a schedule one drug is something that is highly addictive and has no medical usefulness. So it has to meet both those qualifications. Cigarettes, highly addictive, no medical application. Alcohol, highly addictive, no medical application. Coffee, highly addictive, no medical application. McDonald's, highly Mm. addictive, no medical application. Opioids, opioids, highly addictive do have a known medical application. And so that's why they're not schedule one. They're allowed to be used in a clinical setting prescribed by a doctor. And we've seen a lot of chaos with that, but we made an exception because there is an actual known medical application. And what's being found with this very specific medicine is after a long amount of study, no addictive nature, very uh, intense and useful medical Mm. application. And so, that just feels like a no-brainer. They're telling me right now that it'll be approved in 2023, and everybody feels really excited by that. I'm not excited by that. That's another 7,000, 8,000 just veterans, like not even rape victims and sexual abuse, trauma molestation, or just various other traumas along the way. But if we're just talking about our veterans, that's a really long time. And we prioritized things like right now the big priority is getting the young adult vaccine approved uh, fully, not just emergency use. I don't want to be, I know the vaccine is like highly political, way more veterans are dying than Mm. children from COVID. And so it feels at least as Mm. equal on the, uh, how important this should be scale. So 2023 to me is not acceptable. 
And that just feels like a slow roll so that some industries can figure out how do they make the most money on it. And I think that's upsetting. Wow. Uh, so what I, what I feel, I'm feels like heartbroken. And the purpose of this show is to bring data forward that should disrupt some of our sensibilities and assumptions, but also what we accept. And that, that meets all the criteria for being like, a front burner issue for for listeners and and of course more importantly those who are in positions of power in the government so fda has a role in this right who who owns right. cost of treatment on addiction well hhs cms as a taxpayer we should be outraged if right. we're just being greedy yeah. we should be and outraged. then i didn't even bring up the ethical rightness of taking care of those who put their lives on the line for us it's the least we could do so the data if there are indeed, let's just say, motivated companies that have data that maybe would obfuscate that or challenge what you've said, and then maybe they're not using it properly, they're using it for inf misinformation to distract or whatever, you're saying there's even not a lot of that going on, that basically there's consensus and the strategy is just to be quiet about it and let 2023 be sort of the banner and wait it out. Is that, am I getting it right? Yeah. And we've had a couple of um, politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, in the Congress and the Senate who have really been hard. And, and I think what they've really done is threatened to make a lot of noise if there isn't forward motion. I am really grateful to some of those. One, I'm super grateful whenever I see people of different parties saying, let's throw our weight around and try to get something done. And some people that have, you know, just a bit of a following, even if their own um, district is not terribly big, but they have a, um, a media attention, you know, they have a charisma or something like that to say, I'm going to make a stink about this. You know, I see those things happening. The other thing I think that's materialized is some smart people in these fields have said, if I had to talk about the fear, the fear from the industries is the same thing that is the hope for some other people, which is it's a slippery slope. If we open up MDMA for veterans, it's gonna be magic mushrooms for anybody. And my kids are gonna be doing magic mushrooms and they're gonna drive their cars off a cliff thinking they were chasing right. a rainbow. And so, and it, you know, it is that, that bit of a slippery slope. And for pharma, it is, they know that a number of these other things are useful in other contexts and can be grown in a backyard. Things that can be grown in a backyard are not the friend of right. pharma. But some brilliant people in the last couple of years have figured out, well, there's problems with these things that can be grown in a backyard or grown in a desert like a cactus. Uh, you know, one of the best, I'm invested in a company that is synthesizing mescaline for alcohol mm. addiction. And so the key there is that they're saying, you know, mescaline has been shown to be amazing for curing addiction, specifically alcoholism, but it's like a 12 hour thing. And it's very uncontrolled and it can be it can be very scary and just from a logistical perspective there are not therapists who work 12-hour right. shifts and what are they gonna do about that so then you see people say what if we could synthesize that what if we could bring a half-life and a half you know get that down to two hours and as people have made gains on those types of ideas things that can be patented then you start to see the shift you start to see that data make its way to the finance people who say, okay, well, there's other, there's other ways to play this. We don't necessarily have to worry right. 
that things can be grown in a desert or or in a backyard. Yeah. And that's a threat to their revenue. Yeah. Capital. So real quick, just a couple clarification questions, and then I want to open this up. So which who are some politicians, if you can name names, sort of supporting either MDMA or other solutions to this? Dan Crenshaw. Okay. Of course. Right. And AOC are, you know, two very like opposite ends yeah, of no the kidding. spectrum. What I really appreciate about what they're doing is really just staying informed, putting themselves in the room to be informed, being open-minded, talking to veterans, understanding what could be dangerous about doing these things, you know, really understanding where the pain points are, but staying kind of focused on their end goal, which is there seems to be a lot of hope here for our veterans and other countries have done some things that we can piggyback on. Johns Hopkins has done an incredible amount of studies, UCSF, mm -hmm. but really nobody, the thing that people miss is that no one's data on this is better than the United States Pentagon. Mm. Right. Because they're the ones that really led the way to figure it out for a very specific issue. And they've struggled to, I mean, I, they, I think, are thrilled that there's some relief but they struggled to get through the politicians themselves. I mean, they're not, they can't make these things happen at the Pentagon. Yeah. I want to throw this out for, for, for all of us to discuss, because this is really where I wanted to go. So the rank and file of the federal workforce, the, the U.S. government's the largest employer in the United States, multiple millions of right. people. But at the level of political appointees, politicians, those who have cameras in front of them and anything they say reverberates. They're naturally influencers. They have institutional influence and power. To get the message down to the rank and file at the FDA, at the VA, others who have maybe the, the data, like they've done these studies and they have reports on this, or others who have components of the data that if they brought it together could tell the story. What we're talking about is the competition kind of between capitalism and activism at the end of the day is what, what you're saying, right? So companies uh -huh. want to turn an innovation into something and maybe the FDA is in some way beholden to that. I think we're at an age where, and we talk about this a lot on the show, the younger workforce, Gen Z, is not so interested in joining an organization, the U.S. government, at the rank and file level if – it goes against their values. And one of their values is is not capitalism at all costs. I think most Americans love capitalism in terms of the innovation, the benefits, the tech we have in our pockets. I think we all realize it has limits in the way it creates monopolies and bubbles and problems. So there is a way that data can probe that. And this is an issue that seemingly mm. could cause us to use data to pause like if pharma is indeed exploiting these veterans and others by just not doing things as fast as they could and using their financial heft to help this community. That's a big charge that they're not, right? That's a huge claim. So we would want, if possible, the rank and file in the government who have data to support what you're saying to come forward and say, this is the information that either corroborates or challenges what Jerry's saying. And I know the data that you have is where you would start, not just you saying it. So honestly, from a Gen Z perspective, from an attract people to be activists in the role of their their cer certain sort of ethical side of their work, right? Doing things that matter, doing things for the mission. How do you change the culture? We've talked about this in the past as far as mission and culture. And now we're talking about activism and culture. But I think there's a mission element, helping veterans with the care they need. Let's just focus there. How do we turn this data into kind of a weaponized tool to get break through the, the noise. 
I'm glad that you said weaponized because to me that's a lot of what it is about, and it is about using the data and not using the fear. And you know, we're so we're so in t- tuned into fear. We're ten times more likely to pay attention to something that's scary and be defensive than an opportunity. And it takes a lot of training and care and and narrative to be able to say just what is the story of the data. Even when people hear me say MDMA, they're going to go, wait, isn't that the thing that used to be in that thing that people took when I was in college and they were acting crazy and that's scary. And not really, well, you know, you could go the same line with a whole lot of things you can buy at the Mm -hmm. drugstore, like Sudafed. Sudafed is the underlying agreement in methamphetamines, Mm. meth. And that's why you have to sign for it. But we figured it out, right? Like if you have, if you needed to get your stuffy nose clear, we figured it out you can show your driver's license and sign for it. And so like we're capable of doing these things if we're motivated and we're capable of doing these things if we follow the information that we have and steer away from all all of the fear that's out there. And so sometimes people look at a treasure trove of data and they just struggle to actually tell the story of it. What what is impressive to me is over the last decade, our culture decided we don't have enough information we created a tremendous amount of it. We created ability to access it, ability to analyze it. And now we have it at our fingertips. Our ability to actually navigate life, work, family, whatever with it, still evolving. And I think still has a, a long ways to go. And, and this is one of those examples in and of itself for us to say, like, what do we as a people, as a culture aspire to do? And how does this information help us navigate it. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the one thing that came to mind when you first talked about these opposing forces that we're talking about activism versus capitalism, I mean, they're both based on data, Mm. right? It's just one is leading with it. Uh, The activism are leading with the data from these studies that Jerry mentions and the companies are, you know, hiding their financial modeling mm. data theoretically but yeah they're both they're both data based I mean, there's I mean when you think about the situation you described Jerry I mean uh, these are these have been recreational drugs for right. you know a long period of time and there's this is not unique in history where you know those those were controlled those were scheduled whatever and the DEA the DOJ's classification of them really limited the ability of whether it was big pharma or, you know, newly sprouted industries from effectively researching and proving the efficacy of, of those things. And I think, like you said, there's plenty of data, but it's not, you know, the FDA and the other organizations around the globe, just like the FDA, have a very formulaic method by which they deem something to be safe. We, we do a lot of business with the FDA and you know that you're right. The last 24 months have been an example of when there is a will, you know, so uh, that challenge, that risk reward and, and just convincing those, uh, those entities that are the, the ones that are out there, you know, with their risk signs, you know, protesting. And I mean, the, the drug enforcement lobby is is pretty strong. The law enforcement lobby pretty strong in trying to prevent these things. And again, take the illegality out of this. And I bet companies like the one that you invest in suddenly have all of the acceleration that they need to bring something to market 
probably a hell of a lot faster because the known side effects of psychoactive substance are probably a lot less physically damaging than uh, the potential of of introducing some sort of virus into your body to achieve an outcome. So it's amazing what the power of data in the right hands can do. And it just seems that what you're described is a situation where, unfortunately, the, the data isn't aligned in the process. Yeah. And, and to, if you think about it, let's say you're, you're in charge of the FDA and somebody says, hey, listen, we have this interesting information and we want you to act on it. And you're obviously a steward of the taxpayer's dollar. And you say, listen, we could, do, we could spend all of this money and do this thing at the end of the day if the political appetite isn't there on a highly politicized issue and no one's got the clout to make it happen. I've wasted the taxpayer's money by prioritizing it because, because the politicians aren't going to be able to, to do their part on it. Then you know, they're being a good steward of the taxpayer's dollar using you know, that information and I'm, I'm, I'm actually really grateful to the FDA that, like I said, in 2018, they grant, the term breakthrough status is a big deal and I think really paves the way to sort of say, well, let's start packaging up this information for the politicians, but who's going to give the politicians the narrative that gets them the cover with their constituents? Because it's all, it's all downside in our current climate because one person says they support this and then they've just given a great ad to their opponent. To say like this is the world right. you're going to be living in in five years, and you know, and some of that is on on us as the as the citizen mm-hmm. voter to figure out how do we take the information that's out there and figure it out for ourselves, and and not here into the mudslinging. Yeah. So it's like a thought exercise I want to do, Jerry. One of the conversations we've had along the way in this podcast is we've asked a couple different guests what is the likelihood that we're kind of at this inflection point that data brought together in what we might call the decision room, the room where it happens, where everybody can bring their data quickly and parse through the different concerns, not the political noise, but the actual efficacy question, right? The ground truth. So you've talked about, we're not putting it to use. We're not using data to navigate our way to the end goal. So this would be before we start navigating, just to get the process going. You've said there's a breakthrough around MDMA that, or around this treatment that involves MDMA. I'm sure I'm not getting the, the nuances right, but there's a breakthrough. That's a big event. So if at that moment, someone in the FDA said, let's create a decision room where all the data could be brought together, subject matter experts, financial analysts, drug analysts, executives from companies, investors, Mm -hmm. the risk managers, the families of those who have been impacted by suicides, those who are struggling Mm -hmm. with PTSD. Theoretically, the right model of democracy is everybody gets, you know, to be heard. Not everybody's voice gets weighted the same. If you're paying to be an investor and make money, that's not the same as the voice of somebody who's lost their child, right? We should be able to get to a point where these decision room ideas are actually part of our functioning democracy, right? But we're not there yet. So that's that's two thought experiments into the future where we're actually using these things as part of the de- democratic process. I know that's Mark's perfect world. Let's just talk about a business meeting, <laughs> right? Where breakthrough happens, SMEs, analysts, executives, others get together, Behind closed doors, this isn't politicized, and they're looking at the data. How do we get from that point to down the road 
moving from 2023 to 2022 to first quarter 2022, right? Like shrink the timelines to having uh, legitimate achievable outcomes with data. Yeah, Mark, as, I mean, as you know, this is a, a passion of mine and what we're building at Atlas Up. And this is obviously a self-serving no, answer, please, but I'm passionate course. about it, so I'm going to give it anyways. As I mentioned, you have all of this information that's out there and these incredible analytic tools and weapons. And then they don't get turned into the next turn because there's this big gap that happens at the last leg of the race. And so it's like 90% of all of the work and effort and collection that had to happen comes right here. And then there's a distance between it and the PowerPoint, the it and the Word doc, it and the Excel doc that where these uh, decisions happen. And what happens, first of all, there's a lot of room in just the data gets old when it makes that disconnect and it gets manipulated by people because people are creating the narratives. And so you lose less, you lose connection with the information itself um, because it's just people plotting in numbers. And if you look at like click, for example, and you say you're doing these incredible solutions for some of our common customers. And then at the very last minute, people are just typing in numbers because there was a a bleeding need to get it right in front of somebody into a PowerPoint. Right. And then people say, oh, that's really good. I'm glad you had it. And it came from Joe's desk. And Sarah, we had some input on it from this disparate system that we haven't yet integrated. We got to make sure that we get that into the actual data system. But nobody does because the bleeding need was right there to get it into this PowerPoint, into this Word doc, into this PDF, into this Excel file that's coming up in the decision room. Yes. And it never makes it back in. Right. And so what we're trying to do is eliminate that distance so that when somebody says the number that goes here on the PowerPoint is 65.2 million, it goes back into their big data system, back into click, back, back into all the other analysts and those things. They're actually bi-directionally connected so that you don't have nearly as much opportunity to, one, just be misinformed. Uh, you're not operating off of a database that's a thousand desks desktops of spreadsheets and, and uh, flat files, Right. you're not doing, oh, there's all these different permission levels of the information. And so we made a different PDF or a different PowerPoint for everybody's different permission levels. Oh, this, this one has financial data on it. These people can't see that financial information. So we have to make another copy. Now we have two, three, four, 10 that has to be updated. And furthermore, we can't have the people in the room talking about it that aren't allowed to see the financial data. So now we're gonna have two, three, four, 10 meetings about it. And all those meetings have to be at the exact same time, which is a complete waste of time, instead of asynchronously, instead of everybody getting one brief, which is our modern day map of doing work, right. that it shows what they are allowed to see. Like we could all be, even if we could rally together and to be in a Zoom or something like that, the next, 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 I and everybody else could be seeing what they are allowed to see with data that's spot on, and then, Susan says, actually, I can see that on slide six, it says X, and I was updated this morning that it's Y. You make that change in the, in the PowerPoint, so to speak, which is really our system, and it goes back through all of anywhere that it needs to go through the proper controls that it needs to have. And that's the other mm. big problem. Like none of these things have the controls that right. they're supposed to have on them. So I know that sounds like a self-serving pitch, but it is my genuine answer as far as if you have more data, if all of your narratives and all of your maps, it's sad but true that we just run our organizations, especially the bigger organizations, 
from mm -hmm. PowerPoint as the map, even though we invested meaningful amounts into the data that we need and then disconnected them and screenshot pieces from our great analytics tools and pasted them over into this thing and another thing and another thing and just lost all the integrity that we invested in into for the space between there and the room that you actually make the decision. And I think we'd have a little bit more ground truth all the time if those maps were really driving from our underlying data systems. And for you know some organizations, they don't have complex data systems. It's gonna be just saying, okay, it's not gonna have a big click engine underneath it, but they're gonna have what they have and organizations that do have big data systems behind them are gonna get, you're basically gonna get to the level of which you've already invested in, but you're gonna have a much more ground truth uh, story at the end of the day to make those decisions that you need to make. Yeah. And to lead from and to say like, what is, what is, and, and the confidence, I mean, half of, for me as a leader, as a CEO, half of the wasted time has historically been, I'm just not sure that the narrative that got, I'm not sure about the validity of what got put in front of me. Right. Because it feels like everybody wanted to posture something for the decision they wanted me to make and that they cherry picked the data that mattered. And, you know, I want to click on it and see, like, what happens when you do this? What's it connected to? And go into the analytics engines. And, and, and then the, the what ifs. We always, get, we always waste time. So if you're in a room trying to be, do exactly the scenario that you just said, Mark, and somebody says, well, this is neat, but what happened? You know, right, the inevitable question. They have a question right, right. that wasn't prepared right. for. And the answer is, I don't know, sir or ma'am. We'll get back to yeah, you on that. Meet again in a month. Yeah, we'll meet again in a month. And we're going to rally all these people together again. And instead, if you, there's no reason to do that. They invested in having the data. They should just say, well, that's a great question. Click on it. In this case, I'll use you guys as the example. Go right into yep. click. <laughs> nice on time. <laughs> and say, oh, yeah, well, here is the raw, like, here's the visualizations. You click this. You can drill. Here's the people involved. That's going to lend confidence. It's going to give immediacy to the decisions that need to be made. Not slow everything down until it's no longer relevant. And quite frankly, make great use out of all of our human capital. Well, I'm, I'm going to let Andrew and Courtney sort of wrap up because you and I have had this conversation over years. And Jerry, I'm glad you were able to say that each time what you're investing in and developing gets clear because where capitalism and activism can come together is in the passion to take data and ground truth and point it at real problems, which include cultural problems, which include leadership decision-making that isn't consistent with the quality and the integrity of data we do have. And I appreciate you saying that because it doesn't sound self-serving. It sounds like you've believed that there's a way to solve a, a fundamental problem in decision loops throughout the world, throughout our organizations. And that is the kind of thing that attracts young people to work, that motivates people, that gets us off our butt each day when a lot of times it feels like we're all paper pushers, even though we're in an age of analytics. So I applaud that. And, and before Courtney and Andrew wrap up, I'm just going to say the meaningful kind of connection between activism and capitalism and sort of personal relationship and you having passion about the things you've talked about and pivot from veterans to, you know, decisions about veterans is what we're talking about. I've taken the step to go get help for myself, right? Minuscule issues. Right. My brother-in-law or my brother, he fought in Iraq. He uh, is a real hero. But in those times when I was afraid for my family, you know, we lived a block for two blocks yeah. from, well, two blocks, two miles from the Pentagon. And 
I, you know, I could see the building just minutes after the, the explosion. And that tied to things when I was a kid that I was afraid of and churned it all up. And I've sort of had this anxiety about the world that I need to get help. So you doing this. Oh, and I'm so excited to hear you say that. And I appreciate you offering yourself up on this uh, format for people to well, hear. Because I think you're a great leader. Hmm. And I think that shows it even more. Well, thank you. And you know, I'm just trying to follow the path of people that are, are combining what we're all passionate about, solving problems and the hard part, data. And it just led to an obvious conclusion that I need to get help. And, and I'm saying that for others that maybe haven't taken that step. I know it almost sounds like we're a church now or something, but really, for those <laughs> who are listening, we're in this workforce uniquely in the federal space, one or two degrees of separation from lots of veterans. We absolutely, minimally, we can't yeah. maybe change the FDA in a minute, but we can call a friend, we can ping a friend with a reminder and encouragement. They matter. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Andrew, Courtney, take us home. I, I just could talk forever about this. Sitting here and listening to, you know, whether it's you know, the process through which these therapeutic uh, substances might one day be approved or decision-making. I, I, I really, this will be my dark side look at society. I think there's a real problem in that uh, there is an assumption of bad intentions with so many things. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the data in the world doesn't sometimes help people bring a number of groups with different viewpoints to a consensus. And it's it's because they begin with the, the idea in mind that they have bad, they have bad intentions, and uh, it's a struggle. And I, you know, compared to what we're talking about, let's hey, let's bring you know a, a potentially life-saving therapeutic drug to a very well-deserving population that that gave so much. Uh, it happens in the most mundane. I mean, like people budget battles, right? You know, like what, like or your office, like you said, got two different groups pitching a different idea for your company in a startup, and they are got their heels dug in. You know, this is you know the thing that is just amazing to see the dialogue uh, with no intention. Often, I mean, it's not always the case. The dialogue with no intention of really trying to to see the other side through. I'm guilty of it all the time, I'm certain. I, my wife will tell me that I probably never never really hear <laughs> what she tries to uh, explain to me. My the people I work with, probably the same. But you know, that's, you know, to me, there's, there's that uh, fundamental problem that sits as a frickin' tall wall in between, uh, you know, this resolution that could be there for all these things we just talked about and many more. Andrew, do you mind if I just say one last thing that's very relevant yeah. to what you said? So the whole, when people ask me, why do I love technology? Why do I love these big data systems? Why do I love software? What gets me really, really excited about it is so relevant to what you just said. I believe that if we could just cross this kind of last bridge of efficiency, that right now, I'm going to use an illustration that I, I'm stealing from my mentor, Peter Diamantis um, from XPRIZE. He's a brilliant guy. He does this illustration. There's a tree, an orange tree. Two people come up to the tree and they see that there's, they've got families to feed and there's only so many that they can reach. Do they fight about it or do they team up and build a ladder to take all of the oranges off the, the bloom? Our instinct right now is to fight, is to say that there's not enough. Almost every battle that we have is fear, is I'm afraid that there is not enough and we should fight about it. And I believe that that's because we just haven't gotten efficient enough to believe 
that building the ladder will be the better way and be our first instinct. And I think the work that you guys are doing, and I want to use this as just to like inspire you to have the fire in your belly to do what you guys are doing all the time. I think the work that you guys are doing right now and the work a lot of people are doing in technology, software, AI, ML, buzzword, everything, is if we could shift the efficiency just over this kind of last hurdle, then the instinct will be to reach for building that ladder instead of fighting. And that ladder is just technology. Are we going to fight about energy or are we going to realize that the sun has more than enough energy for everybody on the planet? We are just not great at harvesting it yet. And if we had spent all the energy we spent fighting on finding out how to harvest that energy, it would have solved all of these problems, including the jobs that I have a lot of compassion for uh, that are in jeopardy from green energy would have solved all of their problems too. And we wouldn't have to fight about it at all. And that's the... And I genuinely believe that in our even professional lifetime, we're going to see that shift from scarcity to abundance where we're reaching for the ladder all the time. And I think that the work you guys are doing is a meaningful part of it. And so I want you to think about it if you don't mind when you wake up and you think, oh, man, I'm tired today. Last night was a late night doing blah. Just think about your part in shifting all of that, if you would. Mm, Love that. Thank you. Yeah, you have no idea how much we just needed that. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's hard. It's so hard. It's hard. You get a lot of no's, right? Oh, man. Courtney, last words to wrap it up. Um, Yeah, I mean, I can't can't tie the bow as as tight as you normally do, but I think I just wanted to uh, highlight how much I enjoy these conversations. I came into uh, this podcast like probably... Andrew did as well, like looking through your LinkedIn and Twitter and all of that. And this is not at all where I thought this conversation was going to go. And I really do mean thank you. Um, we did have we did have a rough week, and this was a, a super inspiring conversation. Keep the fight. Yeah. Well, that ties the bow from my perspective. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much on behalf of sort of the Click team that is all fighting for this. And I know the Atlas and Kitewire teams are fighting for the same thing. There is, there's a ladder. And what I love about being an alliances guy is inherently my job is to build ladders. And yeah, and you do an awesome job that, Mark, I just well, gotta say. Thank you. I feel like the orange is still right above the ability of me to build a ladder, but I will say my partners are better than I am and they, they inspire me, including you. So thank you so much. And uh, Jerry, any last words before we, uh, before we wrap up? Nope. I think I, I think I said my piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That's a wrap. Thanks guys.